River Valley and beyond. We have custom cut meats, fresh produce and seafood, regular and organic grocery, locally produced foods galore, topped off by an extraordinary wine and beer department and a state liquor agency. Shop Mahuron Supermarket, Village Square Shopping Center, Waitsfield. It's time to get the story behind the story. Interviews with newsmakers, newsbreakers, and your phone calls. Radio Vermont presents The Mark Johnson Show. Thank you, Jim Connie. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Thanks for tuning in. I just love being able to say another uh, splendid day out there. Thanks for spending um, part of your morning with us. Forecaster Roger Hull is predicting a bit of a heat wave on the way. I know many of you will uh, be happy to hear that news. Coming up on the program this morning, we'll have, our, I guess, our own small mini heat wave here this morning. We have political reporter Paul Heinz is joining us here on the program. Setting you up. You're going to better come up with something good Jeez, after that. Wow. Huh? I don't know, man. Huh? All right. We will uh, take your phone calls as well, too. You can reach us and you can uh, grill Paul at 244-1777. You can also praise him at 877-291-8255. The, the phones are already ringing off the hook, Mark. I wonder where the balance might fall on that. Gosh. How uh, how you write a column weekly for seven days, uh, the fair game column. So uh, tell us, how popular is your column? It's incredibly popular, Mark. I, right. I appreciate you asking back, that question. Back, Everyone back loves it, it. You know, um, first thing they read. That's all I got for you. Okay. All right. <laughs> what's the What's the feedback you get on the column? Seriously, uh, I'd say mostly negative. You know, people don't reach out to you unless they've got a got a beef with you. So. Okay. And, I don't know. and you're okay with that? Yeah, totally. All right. I don't think you get into writing political columns to. Uh, make people happy happy necessarily all right you know what are you trying to accomplish with the column i am trying to accomplish journalism mostly i would say a little bit of commentary as well okay all right how would you define journalism paul (laughs) these are tougher questions than i thought uh we'll get to the light stuff in a few minutes here (laughs) how would i define journalism yeah what do you mean? How would I define journalism? Well, what do you what are you trying to accomplish with the column? I mean, there there are different political columns, and you know, you probably have your own take on it. So, what do you what do you every week? What are you trying to achieve? You're trying to tell people stories about what? I am trying to uh, explain how I think state government works. I would say is what drives me. Okay, all right. Let's talk about the Bernie Sanders campaign. Uh, you've been recently following the presidential aspirant. So, uh, how long were you with them? Um, I went out to Iowa and Wisconsin for about four days. I started out in Madison, uh, where he held uh, what was at that time the largest rally of the presidential campaign. Um, Ten thousand people showed up to this hockey arena and went absolutely wild for him. Um, he has since held a larger rally. Uh, I think he had 11,000 people in Phoenix uh, last weekend. Um, And then I followed him. Uh, He went to Minnesota the next morning. I went straight to Iowa and followed him around western Iowa for about three days where he did mostly smaller events, uh, but he again held one, uh, what I believe is the largest rally that's been held in Iowa this cycle in uh, Council Bluffs, which is right across the river from Omaha. Okay. So how much how much time did you actually spend with him when you were doing this? I'd say about zero minutes. You know, okay. I mean, at least talking to him or interacting with him. Um, I spent a lot of time 
uh, watching him deliver speeches and sort of interact with voters. Although he, uh, one of the interesting things about Senator Sanders is he doesn't appear to actually enjoy talking to voters, um, certainly not reporters. So a lot of what you see is him trying to flee to the car after events um, and <laughs> shake as few hands as possible, kiss as few babies as possible, that sort of thing. Huh. Sort is of the anti-Bill Clinton. So is it is it people that he doesn't want to talk to or is it the media he's trying to avoid? I mean, you know, I, it appears as if it is people in general and especially people who are in the media. Uh, you know, e- even local reporters he does not seem too jazzed to talk to. Local reporters from Iowa... Um, who you'd think he would really want to be yeah. touching base with. Um, yeah, that seems a little odd to so me. So he holds sort of brief media scrums at many of these events. Um, I attempted to ask him a few questions at those, and, and he seemed even less interested in speaking to the Vermont media there. Uh-huh. But you know how he is. I mean, that's sort of, that's nothing new. Yeah, he's a little, I mean, gruff might be the word. Gruff, yeah, might be charitable, yeah. Uh, so is it now at a point where, say, people in the Vermont media, you can't even get close to him anymore? Well, I could never really get close to him in the first place, so uh, things haven't changed all that much for me. Um, you know, I I would often make requests to his office for interviews over the last three years or so that I've been at Seven Days, and uh, they were rarely granted. I've, I had a couple of opportunities to talk with him, uh, maybe three or so in that time. Um, at news conferences, as you know, uh, oftentimes once he is through the uh, chosen topic of the day, of the day yep. he will take maybe a couple of questions on that topic. If you ask a question on a different topic, um, he usually says, well, let's answer questions on the, let's ask questions on the topic, and then he uh, typically won't answer those questions, uh, which is quite different from other politicians in the state, as you know. You know, the governor um, almost every week gives the media at least an hour, or gives the media about an hour to ask him about anything, right. uh, which I think we all appreciate. Um, and but but Sanders has never really done that. Um, yeah. You know, there's one point actually uh, after the Newtown shootings um, when I was trying to figure out exactly where he stood on gun issues, and um, I made requests for about almost three months uh, to speak with him about it, and uh, they were sort of denied or ignored over and over again. Huh. Wow. So, you know, it's nothing new uh, to me. Uh, so you have to find different ways to try to cover him and to cover the campaign. And uh, one of those ways is to just go out there and follow him around to see what he's doing. Mm-hmm. And, you, know, you, don't, you don't get everything from that, but at the very least, you can see how he's talking about the issues, how, he's, how his stump speech is evolving, um, how people are perceiving him and reacting to him. Um, and I actually went out there last September uh, with, I think it was his maybe second trip out there at the time when he, before he had decided to run um, so it was interesting to sort of uh, compare the two. And he certainly evolved as a candidate. I mean, he's got his stump speech is much crisper. It's just as long, but it's better delivered. It's more on point. Um, the reaction from voters in Iowa was totally different. Back then, uh, you know, there were certainly a lot of people who were saying, I'm really excited about his message, but I really hope that Elizabeth Warren gets in the race. Right. Or, you know, basically, like, he'd be an okay option. Um, right. If it came down to it. But uh, this time around, people were just ecstatic. I, I barely heard, I think I may have heard Elizabeth Warren's name uttered once. I mean, people were psyched about not just Bernie's message, but about Bernie himself. And they, you know, I was surprised by the number of people I talked to who said, uh, you know, this guy can win. He can totally win. No reason he can't be president, mm-hmm. which is not something I was hearing 
last September. You know, it's fascinating, too, to watch some of the media coverage. There was a story last week that 350 guy, Nate Silver, writing about, well, yeah, I mean, he could win Iowa and New Hampshire, but then he's not going to win anything after that. That was not the that was not the rap a few months ago. His own site, Nate's own site, was a different writer, I forget which one, just months ago, as you know, yeah, was writing Bernie Sanders doesn't have a chance. And was saying, and basically arguing that he didn't even have uh, a prayer of rising the polls. Um, so I, I do think the national media has uh, totally, you know, totally missed this. <laughs> and I'm not. I'm. I have to say, I'm not too surprised that he's uh, attracted popularity. Um, I am surprised that it's happened so quickly and that he has um, moved up so far at this point. Um, but you know, I, I think. Uh, we all know how talented a politician he is, how uh, appealing his message is to a um, you know, broad swath of the Democratic electorate. You talked to a ton of people when you were doing this reporting. Was it all pro-Bernie or was it anti-Clinton, too? You know, it, it, I tried to ask that question to most people. I, I, you know, I think a lot of it really was pro-Bernie. And that was the point that, that Nate Silver made in that piece that you uh, referred to, that, that this isn't all anti-Hillary that's mm-hmm. driving Bernie. Um, you know, it's hard for me. It's, it's just totally anecdotal for me to say. Um, but, I, you know, I think people, I think the thing that, that, that is, one of the things that is appealing about Senator Sanders is that he really is a stark contrast to Hillary Clinton. I mean, he, um, you know, as we know, you go back through the archives and every, <laughs> he's been saying the same thing for 30, 40 years. Um, that, that's definitely very different from Hillary Clinton. And I think on uh, a number of issues that really resonate with voters. Um, you know, he's got a, a message um, that that works. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about his organization. Uh, well, it seems to be growing very quickly. Uh, he started out with two people, I believe, on his political staff when he announced in what was that? Very early May. Is that right? Yeah, that's something like right. That. Yeah. And I believe he's up to about fifty or so, if I'm not mistaken. Right, that's um, a pretty big ramp up. Yeah, definitely. Um, and a lot of that staff is in Iowa. Um, he is uh, clearly focusing on Iowa and New Hampshire at the moment. Uh, but if you look at his his travel schedule, he's also looking at the, I think it's the March 1st or March 2nd states, right. yeah. um, what used to be known as Super Tuesday. Uh, that's where a lot of these bigger rallies like Maine, Minnesota, I believe, um, Wisconsin, I think, might also be Super Tuesday state. Um, you know, so he's clearly trying to get there and kind of get, get some excitement moving in those places as well. But to my knowledge, at least as of last week, he hadn't hired anyone um, outside of those two states and the Vermont and D.C. headquarters. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned uh, how many people does he have in Iowa? I think 27. Okay. If I'm not mistaken. And how many in New Hampshire? I, when I, this, is, this information is maybe two weeks old now, three weeks old, but, but uh, he only had about two people in New Hampshire at the time. Okay. So, that's surprising. Yes, and I don't know, it, it may well be that that's changed since then, um, but it does seem like he's had a much faster buildup um, in Iowa. And I don't know exactly what the reason is for that. Um, you know, I think perhaps it's that he has to really introduce himself much more in Iowa. Um, also, the caucus system is very different than a traditional primary. It's much more, uh, it takes a lot more organization. I mean, you really have to get, not only get people to the caucuses on a, you know, Tuesday evening and late January, early February, but you have to get them to stand up in front of all their friends, right. everyone they know, and, you know, say, I'm declaring my support for Bernie Sanders. Um, that's a lot harder than just getting someone to walk into a, a voting booth and, you know, pull the lever, as we're, it were. 
We're talking with Paul Heinz. He's a political reporter for Seven Days, the weekly newspaper in Burlington. You can join us at 244-1777 is our local number. Toll-free, you can reach us at 877-291-8255. Later, we'll get into Paul's um, journalistic philosophy. <laughs> how is the stump speech evolving? I'm still recovering from that first question, Mark. Good grief. God. So how's the stump speech evolving? You know, he... He used to go on these really long tangents. Um, the, the thing he was doing a lot last fall uh, was he was reading from the, uh, I think it was David Koch's platform when uh, he ran for, what was it, vice president uh, on the Libertarian Party uh, ticket back okay. in 1980. I, wow. This obscure right. kind of thing. And his point, it was an interesting point, which is basically that, um, you know, uh, the Kochs have been trying to um, downsize the federal government for you know, 30 years, and they've succeeded in large part, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But it was, you know, it, it always it sort of felt a little bit um, meandery, and uh, he's got just these very crisp lines now. Uh, there's sort of a clear, he, he kind of switches around the order a little bit, it seems, but mm-hmm. um, but he hits on all the same points, um, and it, it's interesting to sort of watch him uh, work each line from night to night, you know, sometimes he delivers them better, sometimes worse. Um, but he's, you know, he definitely is improving, for sure. You know, and is, he's somebody who's always been a very good speaker. I mean, it's not like he's starting from scratch here. Yeah. It must be fascinating, though, to see the, the third or fourth time that he kind of gives the same speech. And it's a different audience, but you're not different. You're part of the same. You've seen them all. Yeah, it is interesting. Um, I mean, it, and you can definitely see him playing to a certain crowd. Um, you know, the, the daytime... Uh, smaller town meeting in western Iowa. He he doesn't speak quite as strongly about social issues as he does, and you know, a, a huge thing in Madison where he's talking about, um, you know, uh, abortion rights, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, but but he is consistent. I mean, he's not Bernie Sanders does not pander. Uh, he never has, and so he wasn't. It wasn't as if he was changing his message, just you know, delivering it in a slightly different way. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and. Uh, <laughs> you know, a big part of it is is bashing the media. Yeah, know, almost constantly. It, it, I a couple of times I tried to count how many times he would go after the media in one speech, and you know, it's a lot. I was surprised when he made that announcement up in Burlington. I think that got the biggest applause line when he went after the media, hmm. bigger than and income inequality, money in in politics, all of that. I mean, it was really. I, I was to me, it was noticeably. Uh, really resonated with people. people what, is that, really, what does that say to you, Mark? And people don't like what we do. I, <laughs> what, what's your philosophy on journalism? Would you say? Well, I'm rethinking it after <laughs> after that. I was I thought we were kind of most of us were kind of lucky to get out of there alive. You they know? don't like us. Well, you know, I mean, he is right that there's a lot of pretty shallow reporting. I mean, this whole I don't know what what do you make of this whole Trump story? Do you cover it? Do you not cover it? I mean, what a what a strange turn of events that one is. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm glad I don't really have to make that decision in my job. I'm not really covering this presidential race outside of what uh, our local guy is doing. But yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think I think you do have to cover it. Why wouldn't you cover Donald Trump? Because you don't like him, you know? You don't like what he's saying. Uh, I mean, the fact is, his message appears to be resonating with people. Yeah. Uh, as quizzical as that may be. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, he's polling higher than any other of the Republican candidates. Although, you know, it's... Still, what like fifteen percent of the vote? It's a very fractured electorate. Right. Yeah. No. I mean, he is. He's. He. You can't. You can't not cover him. I mean, he is a news story. He's leading in the polls. He can't. I mean, that's what I think a lot of people object to about what we do, making that 
sort of selection process for people and not letting them do it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, I think maybe that was part of the message of the whole mill campaign, too, don't you? Uh, I guess so, yeah. 244-1777 is our local number in central Vermont. You can also reach us toll-free at 877-291-8255. What, was there any discussion about how much money he's raised? or What are his people saying in terms of, I mean, there's a whole game of expectations, I'm sure they're sure. playing. But they must be happy with raising $15 million. Well, one of the, the more surreal moments I had when I was out in Iowa, was, uh, this, I was there the day that they announced they had raised $15 million, um, And so I just tried to get basic reaction from from senator sanders you know just like a one line quote like we're very excited pleased to see this he wouldn't answer my question about his fundraising even though it was just a great story you know um, because he says he doesn't care i mean he doesn't care about he doesn't want to talk about fundraising he doesn't want to talk about um polls he doesn't want to talk about gas he wants to talk about the issues you know um i mean we'll leave aside the fact that his own staff is putting out press releases on how much money he's raised and how well he's doing in the polls, but uh, he himself does not want to talk about it. Um, I, you know, I think there's no way uh, to say that that number is not impressive. I mean, it is, it is very impressive to raise. Uh, it, technically, it was $13.7 million. Mm-hmm. Um, he transferred the, the balance from his Senate account, um, but that is more money uh, to his traditional campaign than any candidate other than Hillary Clinton or Ted Cruz um, and he raised money from more individuals than any other presidential candidate. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, I mean, that's impressive. There's just, there's no two ways about it. Um, you know, is he ever going to raise as much as Hillary Clinton um, or Jeb Bush when you include super PACs? No way, of course not. Uh, but he doesn't have to. I mean, he's not running that kind of campaign. He just needs to uh, show credible numbers, which he's doing, and he needs to be able to sustain his operation, hire a lot of people. Um, you know, he's not going to have 30-second ads up every day throughout the fall and winter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think that's really necessary. It's going to mm-hmm. be a, a kind of a budget campaign using social media, which he does very effectively. Yeah. So yep. I think he's doing fantastically well. And, and also another point is he held two fundraisers that entire time, both in California. All the rest of the money came in online. And whereas um, Clinton, I forget the exact number, she held something like 40 or 50 fundraisers during that three-month wow. period. Wow, really? Wow. Yeah, and I mean, th- you're not really seeing her at these, at big. she's not holding big events. She's holding these very small controlled events. Um, but mostly she's meeting with donors. And uh, you could argue that makes sense at this point in the race. There's not much to be gained by exposing her, having her answer a ton of questions from the media. It's just looking for gas. Um, but I think that the fact that he is not spending all his time hitting up donors allows him to actually talk to real people. And that's, you know, that mm-hmm. really works well for him. Mm-hmm. Talking with Paul Heinz, he writes for seven days. You can join us at 244-1777, toll-free 877-291-8255. We'll take a short break. We'll be back right after these important announcements. We are high performance, low pressure. Mike Nicastro here from Walker Volkswagen on the Barry Montpelier Road. And I'm excited to announce our summer model year-end clearance event happening now. Get 0% financing for 60 months on most models or 0% for 72 months on all 45 mile per gallon TDI Jettas and Passats. To qualified buyers, this means absolutely no interest, resulting in a much lower payment. Also, here's an exclusive offer only from Walker Volkswagen. Get three years or 30,000 miles of scheduled maintenance included with the purchase 
purchase or lease of all new Volkswagen models during the month of July. A $400 value that will reduce your overall cost of ownership and keep your money where it belongs, in your pocket. Buying a Volkswagen is easy with Walker's upfront pricing. Stop by, call, or click walkervt.com for your easy upfront price. Our staff has one goal, exceeding your car buying expectations. Upfront pricing is a better car buying experience that will save you time and money. Only at Walker Volkswagen, your source for everything Volkswagen on the Bear Montpelier Road and walkervt.com. Morning, Jane. How's our postmistress this fine day? Good morning to you too, Bert. I'm fine, but I'm a little jealous, I have to admit. Jealous of what? Well, it looks like you and Mary are planning a vacation by that resort brochure you got in the mail. <laughs> it's not a resort brochure, Jane. It's from Morgan Orchards, the new retirement community in Randolph Center. Sounds delightful, but it all looks expensive to me. It's actually cheaper than staying in our old place, and we have everything we need. Plus, it's in a spectacular location with great views, and I don't have to mow, shovel, or paint ever again. Well, that sounds really good. How do I get more information for Bob and me? Just go to www.morganorchards.com. The mountains are calling. For more information, visit morganorchards.com. Buy me a Mr. Shane. Please let me explain. Buy me a Mr. Shane means that you're grand. The Hot Sardines will perform in the Trap Family Lodge Concert Meadow at 7 p.m. on Sunday, August 2nd, part of Stowe Performing Arts Music in the Meadow series. The Times of London calls them simply phenomenal. Forbes magazine says they are one of the best jazz bands in New York today. At the forefront of the vintage jazz revival, the Hot Sardines were propelled to number one on the Amazon and iTunes jazz charts after their recent performance on CBS this morning. For concert information, visit StowPerformingArts.com. The Hot Sardines, August 2nd, presented by Knee Binding Inc., co-presented by Cushman Design Group, Harvest Market, Hickok and Boardman of Stowe, and Paul's Fira Company Realtors. Additional support from hospitality sponsor The Trap Family Lodge and media sponsors The Stowe Reporter and WDEV Radio Vermont. announcement. Wendell's Furniture is Vermont's largest furniture store, so we're having Vermont's largest furniture sale. It's a $4 million inventory reduction event. We recently underwent major renovations and acquired a surplus of unsold top quality inventory. We must make room immediately. $4 million worth of brand name home furnishings and handmade oriental rugs have been drastically discounted for immediate sales store wide. Everything must go. Up to 60% off top quality home furnishings. Up to 70% off handmade Oriental rugs. Now is the time to buy living rooms, bedrooms, dining rooms, dinettes, sectionals, recliners, TV stands, mattresses, rugs, accessories, and more are all reduced for quick sale. Nothing held back. It's a complete wall-to-wall sell-off. Hi, folks. It's Wendell. Don't miss this incredible opportunity to own the furniture you've always wanted during our massive inventory reduction event going on now at Wendell's Furniture in Colchester and at the Vermont Bed Store, 4050 Wilson Road, South Burlington. Get details at wendellsfurniture.com. Two forty.
844-1777 is our local number. Toll free 877-291-8255. We've been talking with uh, political reporter Paul Heinz who works for seven days. Let's um, go to the email. We have uh, Marvin who wants to follow up on that journalism question. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, geez. Uh, Uh, If you have any questions or comments for Paul, feel free to join us. uh, 244-1777. Toll free 877-291-8255. So when you were out covering the Sanders campaign, had any of these stories about his background come up, the political story, the other ones talking about his uh, his son Levy, those ones? Uh, when I was out there, the New York Times ran a story that focused on some an essay uh, that he wrote in the early 1970s um, in which he had some uh, very uh, interesting theories about what causes cancer um, including your relationship with your mother, I believe, and, um, you know, the frequency with which you have orgasms, that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, it was, it's, it was a, a strange essay, um, obviously written when he was a young man, long, you know, well before he was elected to office, actually after he ran for office uh, for the first time. But uh, anyway, he, he seemed, you know, I am, I am making a big assumption here, but uh, he seemed particularly unhappy that day, and there were a lot more references to the media um, drudging up things from his past. Um, and I took that as a, a reaction to this story. This was before that story broke about um, his son, uh, that, that both uh, Vermont Digger and Politico, and I believe uh, the Daily Mail, I think was the third outlet that okay, yeah. reported on that that day. Uh, so this was, this was maybe a week or two before that happened. And, th- and this, can you summarize what the story is about his son better than I can, please? Well, you probably read it too. I mean, I've done no reporting on this, um, but uh, the story es- essentially is that he, his son Levy, um, was born out of wedlock, um, you know, between uh, his two marriages, um, and this is something that uh, I think was not widely known. Uh, and there were some sort of basic facts about his um, past, which had been inaccurately reported over and over uh, through the years about his first marriage. Um, but you know, it was it's basically that. You know, it mm-hmm. wasn't. Um, I think it was the kind of story that people read and said, oh, well, that's interesting, and probably moved on with their days. Um, it's, you know, we live in Vermont. This is not like, uh, you know, a breathtaking revelation in, in 2015. Perhaps right. it would have been um, back at the time. But, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I think that um, it has been interesting to sort of see the national reaction because, of course, in Vermont, we're, um, I think the press is a lot more hesitant to cover uh, politicians' personal lives, and I think that's generally a good thing, to be honest with you. Um, and, uh, you know, nationally, that's certainly not the case. Uh, right. I think everyone would, would... It's not surprising that when you run for president, of course, um, this will be reported on. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I haven't really seen anything since then, since those three stories that ran that day about this. I, I don't get the sense that it's really um, had much of an impact. When you say that you've done no reporting on it, wh- why no reporting on that story? And have have we all undercovered, say, uh, underreported, say that first story you were talking about, the the thing where he was writing about the uh, the topics you described? Well, I think those are two different questions. Um, I think that uh, you know, are things that Bernie Sanders wrote in the nineteen seventies uh, informative in a way? Uh, I would argue that they are. Um, you know, do they say everything about Bernie Sanders? No, but they tell us about, they tell us what he was thinking at that period of his life. Now he's, what, 73 years old now. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a long time ago. Uh, do we hold him accountable and responsible for every word he wrote um, decades ago? 
not not necessarily. Um, you know, I mean, I think uh, some of this writing at the time was based on uh, some very bad science from the time. Um, but I, I think all that stuff is fair game. Uh, I feel personally as if I'm not as interested in looking at elements of his personal life that do not directly affect his um, uh, his service. Mm-hmm. You know? And I and that's how I feel about most politicians. I mean, all politicians really. Um, I think that if uh, you know, I, th- I think they should be entitled to their own personal lives. And I think there are there are occasions where it is relevant, such as if you're um, you know perhaps involved in a romantic relationship uh, with somebody uh, also involved in in state or federal service, and there's some kind of a conflict, um, or if there's a, a business government conflict. I think in those cases, it's it's perfectly fair game. But I think reporting on someone's personal life just for the sake of reporting on their personal life, it's just personally not something that that I am super interested in doing. Mm-hmm. There's been some people doing opposition research here in Burlington on Sanders. Yes, the Bailey Howe Library at UVM has a really incredible collection of uh, Senator Sanders archives from when he served as mayor. Uh, I think there are about 30 pretty hefty boxes worth of material. And, um, you know, I went down there, I think it was a month ago now, and uh, I was digging through looking for some specific things for some stories that I was working on. And there were two young gentlemen there who were uh, looking through similar files. Uh, You know, I tried to speak with them and they, uh, they were not interested in speaking with me. They said no comment um, and a number of other God, things. There are a lot of people that really don't want to talk to you, Paul. <laughs> I I, what is it? What do you think know. it is, Mark? I don't know. You seem to want to talk to me. I at guess. least today. I'm trying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, <laughs> that's worth Okay, so you saw these two people. Yeah, anyway, I, it's really not much of a story. They, I saw two people. They wouldn't talk to me, and they left. Um, and uh, one of them was wearing a Jean Shaheen for State Senate T-shirt. Um, as I noted in my piece, um, the uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign hired up, a, you know, a good portion of Jean Shaheen's political staff in New Hampshire. Um, her state director, state uh, communications director, and political top political advisor there um, are all the top three officials from Jean Shaheen's campaign. Uh, so I uh, pointed that out in my piece that. Uh, perhaps these people were associated in some way with Hillary Clinton's campaign. Um, the uh, All of the campaigns that I reached out to um, either denied that they were involved or um, or had no comment. Uh, mm-hmm. So I in no way proved <laughs> where these people came from. But, you know, it's not very surprising. Uh, obviously, people will be doing opposition research right now. That's what you do in presidential campaigns. Um, and certainly there have been a ton of reporters snooping around there as well. Um, both there and the state archives. And uh, now it seems Senator Sanders has some staff members who are trying to digitize the collection. Um, the New Republic reported that, I believe, last week. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I mean, this is, like I said, this is what happens. So have you have you found anything of interest in these archives? You know, I've not spent as much time there as I should. Um, and I keep meaning to just camp out there for a week and, and pour through it all, but I, I haven't really had the time yet. But when I've gone there sort of um, uh, while working on a specific story um, and looking for materials related to that subject, uh, I, found a, I find a wealth of material. I mean, one example is I, um, uh, the Monday after the Supreme Court ruled on gay marriage, mm-hmm. I thought, well, hey, this would be interesting just to see if there's any, um, any stuff on gay rights there uh, related to Bernie. And uh, sure enough, uh, looked through the index, found some things, and 
I found some great archives from the what I believe was the 1983 Pride Parade in Burlington. In fact, I think you had one of the bylines in the Free Press that I saw. Mm, that would be about the right time. Yep. Yeah. Um, you know, a couple of familiar names in there. Uh, but what I found basically was that Sanders uh, advocated for uh, the city to designate that day Pride Day um, and uh, to confer official recognition on this parade, uh, which nowadays would be... Uh, pretty right, <laughs> ordinary, standard. but at the time, I mean, you yeah. know much better than I do, yep. that was a really, uh, really controversial event. I mean, it was really fascinating to read through the letters to the editor. Uh, you know, these are clippings that the mayor's office produced at the time and, yep. and held on to, and they're just incredibly vitriolic responses. People just um, ripping Sanders to shreds and the city council to shreds for uh, supporting this. Um, and I found, you know, a couple of documents related to that, uh, letters he had written at the time concerning this pride parade, and my conclusion was that uh, here's a guy who, you know, 32 years ago, 33 years ago, was um, was <laughs> where a lot of people are today. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, if you look at the Clintons, for instance, uh, Bill Clinton signed the, domestic, uh, the Defense of Marriage Act into law. Uh, Hillary Clinton only um, announced her support for uh, legalizing gay marriage, I think, what, two years ago? It was yeah. while she was Secretary of State. Yep. I'm not mistaken. Um, so, you know, I think those are pretty interesting um, things in there. Yeah. In addition to the writings that you'll find of, uh, uh, you know, more controversial utterings. I mean, you could reasons. argue Peter Clavel lost his one race in 93 because of his support for health benefits for domestic partners. I mean, hmm. it, I mean so the, that, I mean, that was a significant step that Sanders took that years earlier. Let's go to Montpelier. Hi, Patty. Good morning. Hi. Uh, I have a question. Uh, do you think the utility of quote-unquote news has diminished uh, since it's so available, since, you know, the Internet and 24-hour news reporting? It seems like I feel like I'm bombarded with stuff, and sometimes it's useful, and a lot of times there's a nugget of fact, but most of it is... Uh, about what people think of something. Hmm. Okay. All right. I, I mean, I feel like I am bombarded with information. Um, I'm not always bombarded by news. And, um, you know, I think that it, we are living in a very different world. And, and one, you know, we're all, as journalists, dealing with the situation in which um, most news reporting is somewhat free these days. Um, but it is not free to... Uh, create news to employ reporters um, to do the kind of work that I think we all aspire to. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we're in a period of transition here. Well, and also, I think I'd, I'd argue, too, there's the never-ending deadline. So, you know, there's a danger where you may not do all the reporting that you might have done in the past before you publish something, right? Yeah, definitely. I think there's this this sort of race to get the story live um, and so you might not make that extra phone call. Um, you might sort of go with what you have um, because we're all, I mean, not only are newspapers competing with newspapers these days, but newspapers are competing with radio, with TV, um, with online-only news organizations. And, um, you know, I think the result is, I, I think competition is very good, um, but I think there is also a place for more, um, for deeper reporting, uh, more considered reporting. Um, and, you know, it was before my time as a, well, not really. I guess when I started as a reporter um, at a daily newspaper, 
the internet hadn't quite caught on in Vermont, and so uh, you know, you would go through the day, you'd keep making your calls, yeah. um, you know, and you just hope that whatever story you arrived at by the end of the day was better than the Rutland Heralds, you know, <laughs> in, right. in, the, in the case of the Brattleboro Reformer where I worked. Um, yeah. So you know, I mean, but things change. You gotta you gotta adapt to the times, and um, I think we'll get there. I think we'll all sort of figure out how to work this new media age. Adapt or die, right? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we'll die. Let's go to Newbury. Fred, good morning. Hey, if Bernie becomes president, will he speak softly and carry a big stick? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Feels like a trick question. Yeah, I think it is a trick question. What do you think? I'm going to change his tune. I don't think I've ever heard Senator Sanders speak softly. Um, but I wonder about the, the stick carrying. I mean, I, one thing that I've thought about uh, a fair amount recently is... Um, what Senator Sanders would do on matters of foreign policy. It's uh, not a, uh, a realm that he seems to focus a lot of time um, and attention on, and I think it's, it's something that could end up being problematic for him, especially when he finds himself on a debate stage with the former Secretary of State, who yeah. is arguably uh, more knowledgeable about foreign policy than almost anyone in this country, you know, um, whether or not you agree with her positions. So... Uh, I'm kind of curious to see how that debate will shape up this fall. Has he talked at all? I, I mean, I, I'm trying to sort of scratch my memory here. I, is he, I mean, he spoke in favor of the Iranian deal. I know that. Yep. But other than that, I'm I'm hard-pressed to think of many things that he's been talking about. Yeah, and... The, against the trade deal and the, the Trans-Pacific trade deal. He really called yep. out Hillary Clinton for not taking a position on that. Yeah, but again, that's more uh, economics. I mean, that goes back to, to his core message. Uh, when I was following him around Iowa, um, you know, over the course of four days, and I don't know how many appearances, uh, foreign policy came up just twice, and uh, only when it was raised by someone asking a question. And he delivered kind of a rote response, which was, um, and he kind of delivered this <laughs> this response to two questions that were very, very different. Uh, one was about the Middle East, one was about Russia. Uh, and in both cases, his answer was sort of like, uh, you know, ISIS is bad. Putin is bad. Foreign policy is very complicated. I was against the Iraq war and we all have to work together with other nations to, you know, get along, get along. Yeah. I mean, it's very, uh, like, sure. That sounds great, but, uh, it was not terribly nuanced and it was very, the second time this came up, um, he was asked specifically about, um, whether the U S response to, uh, Russia's annexation of Ukraine, um, was appropriate essentially and he just transitioned straight back to isis which to me was like what are you talking mm -hmm. about you yeah. know this is not related um so i i am very curious to see how these issues um come up in the fall i mean i think that, i think secretary clinton is probably looking forward to that debate 244-1777 is our local number toll free 877-291-8255 let's talk about some state politics here uh in fact i haven't seen you since Peter Welch decided to not run for governor, but you actually predicted this. Before he made his announcement, you said to me that he wasn't going to pull the trigger and do it. Why did you think that? You know, I think that he appeared to me to be very comfortable and uh, with his current position, happy with what he's doing. Um, and I do think that uh, he can be a little bit risk-averse, and I think this was a pretty risky proposition, not just electorally 
Um, but also it's a really, it's a very difficult job. I mean, I think that I would argue that being a member of Congress is a whole lot simpler, uh, especially when you represent Vermont, than uh, serving as chief executive of the state. Um, so, I, you know, I, it, it seemed to me at the time that he appeared um, to be in a good place for him. Um, and I wasn't really seeing a lot of... Uh, desire on his part to you know come back and fix a particular thing there wasn't sort of an issue that seemed to be driving him um when you ask him about it he said well i want to support the middle class and but it was very uh non-specific he was against isis too, think, too. <laughs> yeah. very controversial yeah. yeah position um so yeah i mean I, I think there were a lot of there's a lot of wishful thinking in democratic circles in montpelier that he would come back he was seen as the one person who could vanquish phil scott um, you know, and, and, and make this an easier year for Democrats. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, don't know, I was just never really quite seeing that from him. And it is, I mean, whoever's going to be taking that position next, it's going to be a tough job. No kidding. It's going to be a really tough job. Let's go to Middlesex. Travin, good morning. Good morning. Um, I, I have a question as uh, your perception is how uh, Senator Sanders connects or, or doesn't connect with an important part of the Democratic voter base, that is, uh, black voters um, and, uh, you know, recent immigrants. You know, you've commented, uh, characterized him, I think, correctly as both gruff and someone that doesn't pander. Uh, but you're, you're aware there was a recent, well, to be charitable, unfortunate um, disconnect at, at the Netroots, Netroots conference with some black women from Black Lives Matter. And I was yeah. wondering how you uh, think he will deal with uh, those issues. And I'll, I'll hang up okay. and listen. Thanks. It's a great question. We've explored that a little bit in our paper. Uh, my colleague Kevin Kelly wrote a, a, a very interesting piece about this several weeks ago talking to um, African American and Hispanic Vermonters about uh, their perceptions of Senator Sanders. And uh, some of the people that Kevin spoke to said, well, you know, it just doesn't often feel like he's speaking to us, doesn't feel like he's speaking our language. Um, this is not out of the ordinary for a Vermont politician uh, to not be well-versed in speaking to a more diverse audience. This is something that Howard Dean struggled with when he ran for president a little bit. Yeah, um, good point. And, uh, you know, I, I do think that the Netroots Nation incident um, was a very interesting tryout, really. Um, I mean, this is something that, that people have been writing about for weeks now. Um, I would have expected to... Uh, I would have expected him to be more prepared for that moment when it happened, um, and he did not appear to react uh, very well. Um, for those of your listeners who, who haven't seen the footage, what happened essentially was a number of protesters involved in the Black Lives Matter movement um, interrupted a uh, very progressive forum in Phoenix on, I think it was Saturday, um, and uh, first they interrupted Martin O'Malley, the former uh, Maryland governor, and uh, essentially tried to get him to address um, institutional racism, uh, to address the uh, number of uh, deaths of African Americans in police custody in recent years. And uh, I think O'Malley was perceived as, as, as making some uh, poor moves, such as saying uh, the words, all lives matter. And white lives matter, too. Right. I think he, right, he said black lives black, matter, white lives, white lives matter, 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 all lives, all matter. lives matter. Yeah. Nice um, try. Well, yeah. I mean, that certainly um, was not And he's taken, against ISIS, too. <laughs> that was not taken well by, um, by these protesters. Um, after O'Malley left the stage, after 10 or 15 minutes, Sanders got up. Um, so he had more time to think about and prepare for this. Yeah. Um, and yet 
his reaction appeared to be one of sort of, well, you know, I don't have to be here. You're, I can leave. If you you're interrupting you're me. You're interrupting me. It was, it was, you know, gruff again, I think would be a charitable way to, to put his response. Um, and he tried to sort of push the subject back to his message again, to, to the economy, uh, to economic inequality. And his message was sort of, um, you know, these issues that I'm talking about uh, would uh, really, if you listen to my ideas, it would really help African Americans. Um, and however much truth there might be to that, that was certainly not uh, what these protesters wanted to hear. They wanted him to address racism directly, um, and he did not appear to do that. Um, since then, he has changed his tone a little bit. His campaign has put out more statements um, directly addressing these issues. He's, he's woven more of it into his stump speech. But, you know, I've, I'm surprised that he didn't see this coming. I'm surprised he wasn't ready uh, to deal with this. I mean, I tried to picture... Bill Clinton up there. What would Bill Clinton yeah. do in that situation? Oh right? He would have brought, brought that he person brought, up stage. He would have brought all of them up on stage yeah. and he would have Put sat everyone down, arm, exactly, yeah. arms around, you know, he would have been done the lip quivering thing. Yeah. You know, I feel your pain. And, uh, you know, I think that's, that is uh, what probably a lot of people want to see. You know, yep. certainly what, what I think, I think the people who were protesting that day wanted to feel like they were being listened to. And I think that they saw him as talking over them instead. Yeah, there was a story today. He really roundly condemned that latest case where the woman who died in police custody. So I think maybe he's kind of getting that message. Yes, I think that's right. Let's go to Fairfax. Bob, good morning. Good morning. Two points. One, I think it's a cynical charade to appoint uh, Democratic apparatchik Tom Little to investigate Bill Sorrell's ethics violations. Okay. Alleged so. And it took a lot of hubris for Peter Shulman, the biggest ethics violator in the state, to claim he supports the formation of an ethics committee. All you've got to do is read seven days and see the myriad of ethics, questionable ethics decisions and appointments that he has made. So, Bob, help me. What's this Democratic apparat or apparatchik of uh, Tom Little? He was a Republican. Then uh, I stand corrected, but I still think it's going to be a whitewash. Okay. All right. You know, the bar has a way of sticking together. Uh, okay. All right. Do you, do you feel that way, Paul? I mean, is, uh, how is Tom Little viewed as being an objective uh, deliberator on this? What are uh, you hearing? You know, I'm not hearing much of anything about how his investigation of Sorrell is going. It's it's definitely top secret. Um, you know, I I know Tom Little a little bit in part because he actually represents and has represented seven days in the past. So I know him through that context, um, and I've got a great deal of respect for him. And it appears that um, Democrats and Republicans alike have a great deal of respect for him personally and professionally. Um, I think the proof is going to be in the pudding as far as what his uh, investigation entails. Uh, I frankly st still don't have a very good handle on um, how comprehensive a look he is taking at uh, General Sorrell's uh, actions. Um, and so I'm, I'm very much looking forward to reading the report, but I'm certainly not going to prejudge it. Um, you know, as far as uh, the caller's questions about Governor Shumlin embracing the formation of an ethics commission, um, that was certainly surprising to see yesterday. Uh, the Associated Press reported that he is not only for it, um, but according to, I guess, uh, the governor's spokesman, um, he's never been asked about this before. And so 
you know, this is nothing new for Governor Shulman to support the Christian Ethics Commission. Supported it all along. I mean, nobody asked. Right? Yeah. So, now, so is that true? I mean, didn't uh, you? Or oh, I'm so I glad. Think? So glad you asked that question, Mark. Is that true? <laughs> you know, um, my memory isn't what it used to be. Maybe it never was much of anything. Um, but I was asking myself that question, and I went back through my emails to see, gosh, did I? You know, did I ever ask this question? Um, and it turns out I did ask that question in January of 2014, uh, after Campaign for Vermont uh, put out a number of ethics reform proposals. Uh, one of which was the formation of an ethics commission. And I sent the governor's spokeswoman at the time, Sue Allen, a list of questions uh, saying, "Do you support this? Do you support that? Do you support that?" And she responded to me uh, with sort of a general statement, not specific line-by-line answers, saying, um, you know, Governor Shumlin supports, I think what she said was he supported um, mandatory uh, financial disclosures, and he's open to other ideas, but the devils are in the details, basically. So she dodged the question, um, the specific question of whether he supported the formation of an ethics commission. Um, so I think it is incorrect that he has uh, not been asked this before. Um, you know, certainly at the time he did not say, I do not support this, but he, he definitely did not answer the question. Well, and it, he certainly didn't jump on board when Secretary of State Jim Condos raised the same point. I mean, you know, and these guys, if there's something that's an easy one for them to yeah, do. Yeah, would have held a to. press conference to announce his, yeah, his I mean, I support, endorsement of this. I right? support what Secretary Condos is doing. We never heard any of that either. Yeah, I mean, the fact is um, Governor Shulman has been, uh, I would say, uh, hesitant to weigh in on these issues of ethics reform. He kind of waits until they're about to happen before he um, signals his support for them. Um, this is true of campaign finance reform issues as well. It's also, uh, you could argue, it's true of the formation of that uh, special prosecution authority of uh, Bill Sorrell that we were just mentioning. Um, you know, as you probably recall, uh, these allegations about Sorrell uh, were in the press for a number of weeks. Um, you know, he was asked several times, do you, you know, are you going to appoint an independent counsel? And he, and he said basically no. No, yeah. yeah. He said no. Yeah. And then, no need. I'll, I'll, get, I'll check in on it after the legislature. Right. right. I haven't had a chance to look at this. It's not, you know. Uh, and then what happened was the Senate uh, Government Operations Committee was feeling the pressure and they sent him, they sent a letter to someone saying, we hope you will appoint an independent prosecutor. And before that letter could even be, could arrive at his doorstep, um, he had heroically announced his support for um, the appointment of a special prosecutor or special uh, counsel. That's kind of like when you quit before you get fired, isn't it? That's right, which yeah. is what I'm going to do one of these days. <laughs> All right. Uh, so let's talk about some of these uh, ethical questions that have been come up, come up in the past week or so here involving the, the Shumlin administration. You've got... Uh, the uh, elevation of the deputy now to be the head of the Department of Environmental Conservation, who is also married to a lobbyist. W- what's the story here? Right. Well, um, you know, you had the governor on your show on Monday and asked him about this, uh, asked him whether it was, uh, I guess, appropriate for... Um, Sec- whether it was sexism for them, for the Republicans to raise questions about Right. This. The back right. So he makes his appointment last week of Alyssa Sharon to serve as... Uh, as DEC commissioner, and um, immediately the Republicans uh, start howling, put out a press release saying, you know, questioning uh, whether this is a conflict of interest. How, how could how could she possibly serve in this role when her husband uh, runs VPIRG? And uh, just as quickly, the administration said this was sexism. The Vermont Democratic Party said it was sexism, and 
and uh, and Shulman repeated that when he was on your show. Mm-hmm. So what's uh, what is this a, is this an issue or not? Well, I think um, I think it would absolutely be sexist if uh, if anyone were to say um, that this person uh, was appointed because of her husband. Um, you know, but no one said that. You know, uh, no one, to my knowledge, has questioned um, her qualifications. And and I, d- I don't know uh, Alyssa Sharon at all, but I do know that she served as the deputy commissioner for more than two years now. Um, and so it would appear to me that that is uh, quite a qualification right there. Um, so I have not heard anyone saying that this person is not qualified, um, that she got this post because of, you know, whatever. What I heard from the Republicans was... Um, how are you going to manage what could potentially be a conflict of interest? Well, in their case, they said, how are you going to manage what is a conflict of interest? Um, given the fact that VPOR lobbies heavily on a lot of the issues that are under DEC's purview. Um, and I think those are perfectly reasonable questions. I think that they're great questions to ask. And I don't think that the answer is uh, necessarily that, um, that, it's, that she can't serve in that role. Um, but I, I wanted to hear uh, what the administration was proposing to deal with that. And, and you know, uh, Secretary Deb Markowitz and Commissioner David Mears were, were quick to respond to me and say, well, this is actually uh, not a new situation because she's been deputy commissioner for some time. Mm-hmm. And here's how we've dealt with it. Uh, she recuses herself on uh, any issues that VPIRG is dealing with. And, uh, you know, uh, conflicts of interest come up all the time. David Mears uh, used to uh, work at Vermont Law School at their environmental clinic and he's going back there. And there were a number of cases that he had litigated in his previous job. So when he was commissioner, he had to recuse himself from some of those issues. Right. Um, this is what happens. It happens in state government. We, we live in a small state. Um, there are conflicts, and you manage around them. So, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not going to definitively answer the question of whether this is a, a conflict that um, is insurmountable. Um, but mostly I was interested in hearing a conversation about it. I think that's the healthy thing to do. And I was a little bit um, disappointed, frankly, that to hear the governor sort of make that charge um, when I, I just don't know that the facts bear it out. Mm-hmm. There also were some questions about Brent Raymond, who uh, left the EB-5 program and is now working for a developer. That one seems to, you know, maybe that one seems to have really gained a little traction within the administration as being uh, something that really was a problem. Yeah, this is an interesting one. Um, Brent Raymond has uh, run the regional center, the EB-5 regional center. Um, it's very complicated, but it's, it's essentially um, the entity that certifies uh, these EB-5 programs uh, so that um, people can invest $500,000, get a visa. And, and um, Anyway, uh, he has gone to work for uh, one of the companies that has um, uh, gotten some money through this program. And uh, you know, there, there has been a change in the program recently. Um, the Department of Financial Regulation actually does more of the oversight. oversight yeah. And uh, it seems that the regional center does more of the marketing. Um, but uh, Mr. Raymond had just been on a, uh, a trip overseas promoting this project. Um, and so I, I think a lot of people are concerned about, um, you know, with this revolving door situation. Wow, what a fast hour that was, dude. Thanks for coming down. I <laughs> yeah, hearing hear this music. Paul Heinz. Uh, Halfway right, through my answer. Paul Heinz writes for seven days. This is FM 96.1 WDEV Warren, AM 550 WDEV Waterbury, Montpelier. News is next. AP Radio News. I'm Rita Foley. Before Congress this hour, the nuclear deal with Iran. 
Last night, thousands of protesters packed into Times Square to demand that Congress vote down the agreement.